Many thanks to Carlos Franco of the Ramble Rouser podcast and Carlos Talks on Facebook. Follow him on social media for podcasting, voice acting, streaming, and more. The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder, torture, death, and rape, and sound effects that recall violence and gunfire. Please be advised. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section of wherever you're listening to this episode. Welcome to Yugdo, a podcast where we get mad about Filipino history. My name is Sunny, and this is our season on elections. Last episode, we discussed the many dubious victories of the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and the unseemly murders that happened to keep him and people close to him in power. Today, we will revisit some of those murders. This is not to put forward that martial law was the only time that election violence happened. Let's say a fact that we should be mad about every time we hear it. That violence has become such a natural, expected part of Filipino elections. It's not as ubiquitous as vote-buying, but it's nevertheless distressingly ever-present. After Bonifacio lost Aguinaldo and his upper-class cronies in the first Filipino election, where the Philippines was only just finding its footing as democracy, he was hacked apart with bolos in the mountain. Over a century after that, the world would watch in horror as the aftermath of the Maguindanao massacre was broadcast. Over 50 innocents killed, most of them journalists, and some of them raped before the deed was done by paramilitary forces hired by the Ampatuan clan, trying to hold on to power in the south. But it feels it is most important in the current political climate to discuss the deaths of the martial law elections. Why? Because the son of the dictator, who fostered a culture of impunity, where the rich and allied could assassinate whoever they wanted, might become the next president of the Philippines. They tell us to move on, but we cannot, and never will. It is 1983. Nino Yahino, Marcos's main political rival, flies home from exile in the United States. He brings several journalists from all over the world to witness him. He wears a bulletproof vest. He does not even make it off the tarmac before he is shot point-blank in the head. The soldiers who force him out of the plane say a communist hitman did it, but it is not enough to fool the people. Francisco Laurelia watches the news soberly. He is a teacher and a farmer. He was once municipal councillor for his town, but decided during the institution of martial law not to run again. He knows now, seeing the images of Aquino's dead body splayed on the airport floor, that he made the right decision. Fernando Pastor Sr. grew up poor, but he's done well for himself. He's not sure how these radio and TV reports of Aquino's death will affect him and his family and community. Does this mean martial law is going to continue? In the town of Tayabas, municipal councillor Michael Sumilang's jaw drops in shock and horror when he hears. If someone as lofty 
as internationally renowned as Ninoy Aquino can be assassinated in broad daylight, what hope does the common man have? In the same year, lawman and politician Evelio Javier is still reeling from his loss to one Arturo Pacificador for the seat in then-parliament for the province of Antique. Pacificador is a known and powerful Marcos ally. Haughty, rich, proud, untouchable. Javier is none of those things. He is so much more loved by the people. He takes the sobering news of Aquino's assassination with grim resolve. People like Pacificador winning elections, while people like Aquino are shot point-blank on airport tarmacs? This cannot go on. None of these men know it at the time, but they will all follow in the footsteps of Nino Aquino. In less than three years, all of them will be fighting for the Philippines, for the end of the dictatorship, for a better tomorrow, when they will be assassinated. Because then, it will be 1986. Marcos will have declared snap elections to try to prove to his American allies that he is still loved by the people. He is not. He knows it. But he has the money and the allies he needs to fraud his way to victory, just as he has done in the past two referendums. It is this cold sociopathic mindset that has kept him dictator for over two decades. And it is that mindset that will mean the lives of those who oppose his allies. It is February 6, 1986. Pastor, Laurelia, and Pastor's oldest son are walking together, approaching a checkpoint. The three of them are talking about mundane things. They might be looking forward to whatever snacks or beer await them at home. The snap elections were an opportunity for change. Pastor is well-known and well-loved in his community. He decides to give a shit about politics again. He vocally says, Marcos is old and has been in power for so long. Let's try a young and fresh administration. Laurelia also decided that enough is enough. It was time to stop being a private citizen. It was time to make a stand. He joined the United Nationalist Democratic Organization, proclaiming, We are buried in debt. We've been sold away by President Marcos. The next generations will not be able to pay off all these loans. The government has to be changed. Laurelia and Pastor have been working together, campaigning openly for Corazon Aquino. However, there is danger afoot from the very beginning. Campaigning as they were in the Quirino province. Quirino province is not just in northern Luzon, so-called Marcos country, both then and now, but it is a region lorded over by Orlando Dulay, a staunch Marcos vassal and a very violent man. Just like most of Marcos's other cronies, Dulay has a personal army and a vested interest in keeping power. The Quirino region is peaceful, but only because no one ever dares to go against him for fear of the consequences. Laurelia and Pastor know this, but they try to stay brave. 
even as Dulai's henchman sends them a message saying, better stop campaigning for Cory, the boss is not pleased. This is for the future of the Philippines. That future requires risk. The warning goes ignored. Passing by a security check on this February night, Pastor Sr., Pastor Jr., and Laurelia are suddenly grabbed by three men. They are manhandled, gagged, and thrown into a van. One of the three men is Delai himself, the warlord. Someone who is going to relish the brutalities he is about to commit on these three men, whose only crime was wanting better for the region. The three men are kept in the van for three days, in complete dread and pain. They are then brought to Delai's residence. As they are dragged inside, the three men get on their knees, weeping, no dignity found. Spare us for our children, they cry. Please, we'll stop. Delai stands over them. He shrugs. He says, This is your last night. Three days later, Pastor Jr. and Laurelia's bodies are found in a ravine. Pastor Sr.'s is found another two days after. All three bodies bear the marks of unbearable torture. It is February 10, 1986. Counselor Sumilang is driving a jeep. He is on the way home from a meeting with other political leaders, and he's giving four friends a ride. He exhales. His face, that many call so good-looking he should have just been a movie star, is weathered with exhaustion. His normally booming voice is sore. It has been a long day, at the start of what should be a long year. But this is what Sumilang has signed up for. It has been six years now of giving himself to better the lives of his people, since he became municipal councillor of his hometown in 1980. The martial law abuses that he has witnessed and his efforts to improve the business and trade sectors in his region back then made him increasingly convinced that some radical action was needed. Ninoy Aquino's assassination was only one of those many atrocities. Sumilang came to prominence in the people's hearts when he founded the Quezon chapter of the Concerned Citizens for Justice and Peace. With the organization, he organized marches, rallies, and fact-finding missions. He stormed the streets and the courts with his fellow citizens, demanding justice for those murdered, tortured, imprisoned, and disappeared. Now, he is touring and campaigning with Corazon Aquino herself. They know the snap election is snacked against them, that Marcos and his friends are already rigging the numbers, threatening the people to vote their way. Sumilang, Aquino, and their kind are trying their best anyway. And the people love them. They represent righteousness, freedom, hope. They represent the people. And this is why Sumilang embraces his title of the rising star of Quezon politics. This is why he keeps down to earth and loud and unapologetic about his convictions amidst the danger. This is why he goes to these meetings long into the night. And this is why, 
on this dark night in February 1986, Sumilang has to hit the brakes on his Jeep at the boundary between Tayabas and Lucena City. There is a car blocking the way. He barely has time to exchange glances with his friends in the back seat before the yelling begins. Armed men come out of the car and aim at the jeep. They make it clear. They only want Sumira. If his friends jump out right now and run without any question, they'll let them go. Maybe. What do Sumilang and his companions whisper quickly to each other in that jeep, unlit in the sights of those men with the guns? It is not for us to know. But knowing Sumilang, he tells his friends to take the deal. And they already know, even as they are in fear and in despair, there is no use for all of them dying. The attackers might be lying. They might shoot his friends in the back before they even get a foot away. But there is an infinitesimally small chance that if Sumilang submits himself to their cruelty, they will have a chance. Sumilang says go, and his friends, their hearts in their throats, unable to think straight, unable to say their goodbyes, stumble out of the jeep and run. Sumilang is shot and killed there. His star never rises any further. How many more people would he have defended and fought for had he survived? Where would he be today? We will never know. We can only retrospectively join the thousands who mourn over his bullet-ridden corpse. It is February 11, 1986. Pacificador is running again. He expects to win again. But Evelio Javier does not plan to give him that chance, and all of Antique is behind him. Let's look at Javier's resume. Javier has passed the postgraduate bar exam to become a lawyer at the age of 19. He was a professor at Ateneo de Manila University at the age of 21. At 29, he went home to his birth region of Antique, and he became the youngest governor in the country at the time. After eight years of being governor, Javier went abroad as a scholar and came back with a degree from Harvard. He became director of the Pacific Bureau of Democracy International. He became a partner of numerous law firms, both here and in the United States. Amidst it all, it was still martial law. And now it is the snap elections. Evelio Javier is unafraid. He has joined Corazon Aquino's campaign. He is the provincial chair of the Unido Laban party. He is going to give it his all. Javier is giving a speech on the steps of the new capital building in Antique, the region he was born in, that he has served all his life. He is speaking with passion as always. The people of Antique listen wholeheartedly as he speaks about the future of the Philippines, free from the injustice and atrocities that they've all been subjected to over and over and over. The murders must stop. Martial law must stop. 
amidst his proclamations. Javier and his friends do not notice a man in a black ski mask start, swiftly making his way through the crowd. The man weaves, his sights set on Javier, for a reason much more insidious. Javier is mid-sentence when the man in the ski mask opens fire. The crowd panics. There is yelling, scrambling. Javier is jolted. What is happening? Was that aimed at him? It must have been. There's no time. Someone in the crowd screams, Run, Evelio, run! He stumbles over the steps and he makes a run for it. The man pursues. He shoots recklessly in Javier's direction as people panic and desert the square. Javier is running, full tilt, panting. But the man is firing nonstop and at least one bullet hits its mark. Javier gasps. He stumbles over his own feet and falls. Oh no, he's bleeding. Is he dying? The adrenaline overrides the pain. He has to live. He has to live. Javier scrambles up. He makes his way across the streets. He is spent. He is hurting. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees four more gunmen joining the original man after him. He ducks into an alleyway. The gunmen file in after him. A few seconds after, the air is riddled with the sound of gunshots. And then, silence. It is over. At 43 years old, Evelio Javier is martyred. 24 bullet wounds in his body. Speaking about him, constitutionalist Justice Isagani Cruz said, let us first say these meager words in tribute to a fallen hero who was struck down in the vigor of his youth because he dared to speak against tyranny. He was not afraid. Money did not tempt him. Threats did not daunt him. Power did not awe him. His was a singular and all-exacting obsession. The return of freedom to his country. In 1990, four years later, Delay would be sentenced to life imprisonment for the murders of Laurelia and the Pastors. Five years after his death, the Supreme Court proclaimed that Evelio Javier did win against Pacificador and was frauded out of his win. In 2004, that decision would be dampened when Pacificador would be acquitted of his murder. The people who murdered Sumilang were never caught. The deaths of politicians and activists, including Sumilang, Laurelia, Pastor Sr. and Jr., and especially Javier, all in the days leading up to the snap elections, were the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the breaking point after two decades of countless deaths and disappearances. Brutalities we cannot even begin to know about. Conducted as par for the course, all because Marcos manipulated the system and used guns, gold, and goons to stay in power. This unimaginable impunity that February of 1986 spurred the roiling desperation of the Filipino people into the revolution known as people power. 
the military would turn their back on Marcos. Cardinal Sin would go on the radio asking people to be brave and take a stand. The rest, as they say, is history. Or is it? With any luck and with any mercy, the presidential elections this year will be bloodless. Unfortunately, given political clans and oligarchies, this seems unlikely. Evelia Javier was once quoted as saying, Politics is the concern of good and decent people. But as the season goes, we know that isn't true for the Philippines. It was not true in the first presidential election in 1897. It was not true during the rampant assassination of Marcos opposition politicians in 1986. And it is not true now. Thank you so, so much for giving this season a listen. As always, we work very hard to bring you these stories. This was a time-sensitive task, because of course, by the time we work on the season after this, we'll have a new president. We at Whip Inc. will be casting our votes for Lenny Robredo, who we believe embodies the values that the Filipino people need, and who we believe has demonstrated integrity and genuine care for the people in all her days in office, who we know is the victim of black propaganda and name-calling by the opposition. In voting for her, we will be voting against Bongbong Marcos, who we believe is, at best, incompetent, greedy, and notably absent, and at worst, insidiously trying to gun for the historical revisionism of his family's bloody history while deepening the entrenchment of the known fraudulent oligarchies of the Marcoses, Arroyos, Dutertes, Estradas, and more. That historical revisionism, of course, would include the silencing of the stories of the people that we mentioned in this episode, who died to preserve the democratic process. As Javier once said, politics is not a livelihood and inheritance. This election is an important one. If you are voting in it, we ask that you be genuine. That you vote not just with your family or your province in mind, not just with your biases and your pride. We ask that you think about the country, the nation, our motherland. How much she has suffered since that first election. How many oligarchies she has been subjected to. How much fraud and corruption continues to scar her. We ask you to vote for the soul of the Philippines. Thanks for listening. Yugto is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny, and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for this episode can be found on our website. For more information about the horrors of martial law, listen to Yugto Season 1, The Murders of Martial Law. For more on how the Marcos campaign uses the digital space to spread anti-historical propaganda, follow me at sunny underscore bunny underscore tan on TikTok. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com.